I am uh, really excited to be here. Obviously, I really like coming to these late night gatherings. It's a lot of fun for me to hang out with all of you. Um, and I'm really excited to share with you some uh, of what I have learned, especially recently, um, on the subject of uh, the resurrection. And before I get started, actually, uh, I had to have a conversation piece. So. So, you know, I didn't make all of this stuff up. Uh, I have a couple of handy books. Um, if anybody wants to check them out afterwards, you feel free to come up and grab them. Um, these have been really helpful in putting some stuff together, going through some of the evidence for the resurrection. Um, okay, sorry. That's the prelude. Um, good. Okay, so I want to start out tonight with a hypothetical scenario. Imagine that you woke up tomorrow and read the news to find that the body of Jesus had been discovered in a hidden tomb not far from the site of his crucifixion. In other words, imagine that you received definitive, irrefutable proof that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Jesus was born, he lived, he taught some things, and then he died. And that's all there is to the story how would this news affect you? Would you still pray and read your Bible? Would you still go to church on Sunday? Would you still celebrate Christmas or Easter? Would you even still be a Christian? Many today think that even if the resurrection didn't take place, this shouldn't affect our practice of the Christian faith. Rudolf Bultmann, for instance, a scholar who rejected the literal resurrection of Jesus, once claimed that if the bones of the dead Jesus were discovered tomorrow in a Palestinian tomb, all the essentials of Christianity would remain unchanged. For folks like this, it doesn't matter if Christianity is objectively true. It's enough that Christianity helps you to be a good person, or find meaning and fulfillment in life, or something else along these lines. But is this really true? Can it really be that the literal reality of Christ's resurrection could have so little consequence for our lives today? Remarkably, the Bible itself has already considered this possibility. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 writes these amazing words, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is at the very core of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no victory over death, no forgiveness of sin, and no hope of eternal life. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no power over temptation, no confidence in suffering, and no comfort in grief. 
Without the resurrection of Jesus, we simply do not have Christianity. If Christ is not risen, then you should stop being a Christian tonight. But if Christ is risen, then the conversation changes completely. And that raises the question we are here tonight to discuss. How do we know that the resurrection really happened? I want to answer this question in two steps. First, I want to present four basic facts which we know about the resurrection and which are accepted by the majority of historical New Testament scholars, including those who do not believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. I say this to emphasize that even if you do not believe the Bible is God's word, you can nevertheless have sufficient evidence to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The four facts that we'll discuss are in order, Jesus' burial, the discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances to his disciples, and the origin of the disciples' sincere belief that Jesus had been risen from the dead. And then second, we will break this up in the second piece. I want to show you that these four facts are best explained by the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead. One last comment just before we get started. As I mentioned before, I am deeply indebted to a number of authors and apologists for the material that I will present tonight. Um, I make no claim for originality. I am not the first person to present these arguments, but I do believe that they are true and correct, and I think that they should be compelling. Um, in addition, we're going to discuss some concrete evidence tonight. Um, I don't want this to be really vague or poetic. I actually want it to be like helpful. Um, I've done my best not to oversimplify the arguments. And as a result, there's a couple spots where the presentation might get a little bit technical. Um, so if something isn't clear, please just feel free to interrupt. Or, of course, we always have questions at the end, and you can always ask them there as well. Um, so please, uh, please don't hesitate to ask questions. With that, let me start and, and present these four basic facts about the resurrection narrative, along with some of the reasons that the majority of New Testament scholars accept these facts as authentic and historical. Fact number one, Jesus' burial. According to Luke 23, verses 50 through 56, Jesus was buried in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council which had just condemned Jesus to death. There are several reasons that virtually all scholars across the board agree that Jesus' burial is an authentic component of the resurrection narrative. First, the burial is multiply attested. That means that there's lots of independent sources all saying essentially the same thing. In this case, there's at least four independent sources, including the Gospel of Mark, the sermons and Acts, and the letters of Paul. Second, some of these materials stem from very old sources, such as Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Third, the fact that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council, ultimately responsible for having put Jesus to death, makes it highly unlikely that the burial story is a later Christian invention. Think about it. If you were making up 
the gospel story from scratch. Would you rather have, uh, who would you rather have bury the body of Jesus? One of the good guys or one of the bad guys? You could imagine it going either way, I suppose. But the important point here is that the original authors, what we're seeing is an indication. This is not a proof that they didn't make it up, but it is a nice, it's a helpful indicator. You might think of this as kind of a rule of thumb. If the story, if the author includes some element in the story that maybe they wouldn't have liked to have that way, then there's a good chance that that's an historical detail, that it really was that way and that they're telling the truth. For these and other reasons, the late John A.T. Robinson concluded that the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. So it seems we have good reason to accept the consensus of New Testament scholars on this point. Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb following his crucifixion. Fact number two. The discovery of the empty tomb on Sunday morning following Jesus' crucifixion by several of his women followers. This is, in fact, why Jesus' burial is so important. Since the location of Jesus' tomb would have been widely known to Jew and Christian alike, anyone could have easily visited it and found it to be empty. The fact that the tomb was found empty is supported by several further pieces of evidence. First, like the record of Jesus' burial, the empty tomb is multiply attested by independent early sources, including Paul's letters, Acts, and the four Gospels. I should emphasize that ancient historians are extremely happy when an event is attested by even just two independent sources. To have at least six such independent sources as we have here constitutes extremely powerful evidence for the historicity of the empty tomb. Second, the fact that the tomb was discovered by women followers of Jesus and not men shows that the narrative of the empty tomb is unlikely to be a Christian invention. Someone making the story up as they went would almost certainly have preferred the empty tomb to be discovered by men rather than women. No offense. Uh, the reason is that women in first century Palestine were generally viewed as second-class citizens, and their legal testimony carried virtually no weight in the Jewish court of law. Again, if you had the freedom to make up a story, wouldn't you want to make it as convincing as you possibly could? Why would you include a detail like, the women found the tomb, if you knew that the women's testimony wouldn't carry as much weight socially? Third, the earliest description of the discovery of the empty tomb in the Gospel of Mark is very simple and even a little underwhelming. Dare I say boring? Maybe not. <laughs> it's missing many of the key elements of legendary embellishment that you would normally expect from a later Christian fabrication. In fact, we have a good example of this. Consider what's known as the, the Apocryphal Gospel of Peter, which was written around 150 AD or so and is not in the New Testament. We know it's a fake. In this fictitious account, we see a whole crowd of people gathered around the tomb, 
waiting to see what will happen. We see angels descend from heaven, enter the tomb, and bring Jesus forth for the crowd to see. When they emerge, the angels are as tall as the clouds, and Jesus' head is above the clouds. Behind them, out of the tomb, comes a wooden cross, which is speaking out loud. And Pilate and the Jews are humiliated by their betrayal of the Son of God. <laughs> Talk about propaganda, right? <laughs> by contrast, the Gospel of Mark merely shows the women arriving at Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning, finding it empty, and then meeting a young man in a white robe who tells them that Jesus is risen. That's it! This is not what you would expect if the story of the empty tomb had been made up. Again, I should emphasize, I'm not saying that no one could possibly have made that up. I'm saying it's not what you would expect if it had been made up. Fourth, and finally, the empty tomb is attested by even the detractors of early Christianity. In Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, we find an account of the Pharisees bribing the Roman guards placed at Jesus' tomb to say that his disciples had stolen his body. The disciples, of course, maintained that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Clearly, there was some kind of debate going on. Just like we have lots of debates in our culture today, there, this was the hot topic on Twitter, or whatever the first century equivalent of Twitter was. <clears throat> Matthew is engaging in this debate when he raises this point and mentions that the chief priests are the ones who bribed the Roman guards to say that his disciples had stolen the body. Matthew's purpose is to advance one side of this discussion and defend the reality of the resurrection. But notice what is implicit in both sides of this debate. The tomb was empty. In other words, people were arguing over whether Jesus had risen or whether the disciples had stolen the body. But no one was disputing that the tomb was empty. This provides powerful evidence that the tomb was indeed empty. Fact number three the post-mortem appearances of Jesus to his disciples. Following the discovery of the empty tomb, Jesus' disciples reported widely varied experiences of seeing and interacting with Jesus alive. As with the first two facts, there are very strong reasons to take these experiences as historical and authentic features of the resurrection accounts. First, Paul's letter to the Corinthians details a considerable list of those to whom Christ had appeared, including Cephas, the 12 disciples, more than 500 people at one time, Jesus' brother James, all of the apostles, clearly another group of people, and then finally Saul of Tarsus, or better known as the Apostle Paul. There are several important features of these appearances. Jesus appeared to many different groups of people, not just one person or group of people. He appeared at different times, not just a single time. He appeared in different places, not just one single spot. He appeared in different settings and contexts, not just a single set of circumstances. In fact, he didn't even limit his appearances 
only to those who had previously believed in him. James, Jesus' brother, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah during his earthly ministry, but came to be one of the foremost leaders of the early church following Jesus' resurrection. Likewise, the Apostle Paul was a staunch opponent of Christianity who wanted to see the early church exterminated. And yet, he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and thereafter became an ardent supporter of the burgeoning Christian religion. It would be like the head of Isis suddenly coming to Christ. What could have produced such a radical change of heart? Second, the accounts of Jesus' appearances are again multiply attested in Paul and the Gospels. Third, both Paul and the Gospels imply that the post-mortem appearances were physical, not merely illusory or visionary. The disciples didn't think this was happening in their heads. Again, these lines of evidence have led scholars to accept that the disciples really did have these experiences of what they took to be the physically risen Christ. Norman Perrin writes, The more we study the tradition with regard to the appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear upon which they are based. Likewise, an atheist historian named Gerd Ludemann says, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. For this reason, for these reasons, we are therefore justified in accepting this third fact as well. Fact number four, the emergence of the disciples' sincere belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Like the other facts I've just discussed, the fact of the disciples coming suddenly and sincerely to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead follows from a direct consideration of the relevant texts themselves. For example, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, again, contains a recitation of an early Christian creed, which is very different from Paul's normal vocabulary and sentence structure. So we know that he's getting it from somewhere else. Moreover, on the basis of such linguistic and cultural cues, we can actually try to tentatively assign a date to this creed. Scholars have estimated uh, sometime, in some cases that this creed goes all the way back to within just five years of Jesus' crucifixion. Sometimes I've heard as little as six months. Regardless of the precise date of origin, it's clear from the ancientness of Paul's source that belief in Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead dated all the way back to the crucifixion and resurrection events themselves. Helmut Kester, for instance, argues as a result of 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, that Jesus' death and resurrection was the event upon which the early church's common proclamation was based. Gunther Bornkam, likewise, holds that the Easter faith of the first disciples was not the peculiar experience of a few enthusiasts or 
a peculiar theological opinion of a few apostles who in the course of time had the luck to prevail. No, they were all one in the belief and the confession to the risen one. So then why did the early disciples come so suddenly and sincerely to believe of one accord that the man they had followed for years should have returned from death to life? What possible explanation could there be for such a profound and immediate transformation in the, in the beliefs of this community of first century Jews? If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then there would seem to be only two possibilities. Either Christian belief originated from pagan beliefs, or it originated from Jewish beliefs. However, let's consider each of these in turn. The emergence of Christian belief from pagan influences uh, cannot plausibly be said to, to be the case. Some have suggested, for instance, that perhaps the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection resulted from their being influenced by pagan myths or other religious movements. I've seen YouTube videos about things like this, which is where, not where I do most of my research. I should just let you know. I discourage you from doing it either. Um, closer inspection always reveals the alleged parallels between Christianity and pagan myths to be superficial at best. If the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are intended to be mythical, then they are completely unique among the myths that we know of. T.N.D. Mettinger puts it this way, There is, as far as I am aware, no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mythological construct. Drawing on the myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world, while studied with profit against the background of Jewish resurrection belief, the faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus retains its unique character in the history of religions. The riddle remains. So early Christian belief didn't come from pagan myths. But then, could it have come from Jewish influences? In fact, it couldn't have come from this either. There are crucial differences between the Jewish and Christian views of the Messiah and the resurrection. First, in ancient Judaism, as the Apostle Paul describes in the book of Galatians, the Jews saw anyone who, like Jesus, hung on a tree as accursed by God. This is in Deuteronomy, and Paul describes it in Galatians 3. From the Jewish perspective, it made no sense to view God's chosen Messiah as being accursed. Indeed, the Jews would likely have viewed such, such a suggestion as blasphemous. Second of all, Jewish teaching held that the resurrection was a global event. It happened to everybody all at once at the end of the world. They had no conception of a single person being resurrected before the end of the world. It's kind of like the confusion that would result if someone played happy birthday at a funeral. It would have just been unthinkable. At best, 
The post-mortem appearances that we've seen the disciples had would have prompted the disciples to believe that Jesus had simply been taken directly to heaven or maybe that they were having visions of him the way the uh, martyr Stephen did in the book of Acts. No one would have assumed that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead. So where then did this idea of resurrection come from? Whether one considers pagan or Jewish influences, there simply is no precedent for the nature of the belief which the early church came rapidly to hold after its savior had been crucified. C.F.D. Mool puts it this way, the birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. It follows that the disciples came suddenly and sincerely to believe in Jesus' resurrection and that their belief was not the product of either pagan or Jewish influences. So just to recap, so far we've seen that there's considerable evidence in favor of four basic facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, Jesus' burial in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Fact number two, the discovery of the empty tomb by some of Jesus' women followers on the Sunday morning following his crucifixion. Fact number three, the post-mortem appearances of Jesus to many different groups of people at different times and in various circumstances. And fact number four, that Jesus' disciples came suddenly and sincerely to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead, despite having every disposition to the contrary. The evidence for these four facts is sufficient to compel their acceptance by the majority of New Testament scholars, and I reiterate, including those who do not believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. The question remains, however, what? is the best explanation of these four facts. I believe that the best explanation is given by the hypothesis that God supernaturally raised Jesus back to life. Think about it. This hypothesis explains all of the four facts and it explains them in a very natural way. A genuine resurrection would explain the burial and the empty tomb, as well as post-mortem appearances and the fact that the disciples came to believe in the resurrection. That's an easy explanation. The disciples decided to believe in the, ex in the resurrection because they saw it happen, mm -hmm. or they saw the aftermath, more precisely. In fact, the evidence we actually have in the four facts I've just discussed is exactly what you would expect to find if Jesus really rose from the dead. But, someone might respond, we already know that resurrections are impossible. Dead people don't come back to life. Science has proven this definitively. Now, why anyone would think that we need science to prove that dead people don't come back to life is beyond me. The Christian actually agrees with this completely. Of course, dead people don't naturally come back to life. But if God supernaturally raised Jesus from the dead, 
then the fact that dead men do not naturally come back to life is no longer an issue. This means that all that's necessary for the possibility of Jesus' resurrection is that God should exist. If it's even possible that God exists, then it is also possible that the resurrection happened. Moreover, the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead strikes me as extremely plausible. Jesus, who proclaimed himself to be God in the flesh, whom the Bible portrays as having lived a life of unimpeachable moral integrity, and who claimed to have authority over death and hell, in addition to allegedly performing a large number of healings and miracles. This Jesus is precisely the sort of person for whom the resurrection seems to be a live option. Jesus' resurrection was not a random event. His earthly ministry and message established a decisive moral context in which the resurrection constituted his vindication by God the Father. The resurrection hypothesis therefore constitutes a complete and well-motivated explanation of the facts that we've discussed tonight. But is this truly the best explanation of these four facts? In the little bit of the time that remains, let me briefly consider two alternative hypotheses, which personally I've often heard proposed in favor of the resurrection hypothesis. These are not the only two possibilities, but in my experience, they are two of the most common. First, consider what is generally known as the conspiracy hypothesis. According to this proposal, the disciples stole Jesus's body from the tomb and lied about his post-mortem appearances. Since they allegedly did not believe Jesus had risen from the dead, the conspiracy hypothesis, at least apparently, tries to explain all four of the facts that we discussed tonight. Nevertheless, virtually no scholar today would defend the conspiracy hypothesis, however popular it might be on YouTube. The conspiracy hypothesis would have us believe that the disciples created out of whole cloth a narrative which they had no motivation to adopt and which they had every reason to abandon. Not only had their leader been put to death, but they themselves would come to be persecuted, tortured, and eventually executed for their persistent association with him. Are we really to believe that the disciples fabricated the resurrection story and maintained their lie consistently to a man, even unto death? Moreover, as if that weren't enough, if the Gospels are made up, their authors consistently miss opportunities to embellish and reinforce their deceptions in order to make them more believable. For example, it is hard to see why the inventors of the gospel narratives would have women locate the tomb first or have Joseph of Arimathea be the one who buried the bottom body of Jesus. Moreover, we have concrete examples, such as the apocryphal Gospel of Peter, where the story demonstrably is embellished in precisely this way. For example, by adding a crowd of witnesses at Jesus' tomb to behold his resurrection. The actual gospel accounts are missing so many of the standard features of deceptions that it's difficult to see how they could plausibly be attributed 
to intentional fabrication. As if this weren't enough, the conspiracy hypothesis doesn't really resolve the origin of the widespread belief in the resurrection anyway. Since as we've seen, this belief cannot be plausibly attributed either to pagan or to prior Jewish influences. So then where did it come from? Who would have made it up and why? Moreover, it's also ad hoc as an explanation of our four basic facts. It has to make up all kinds of hidden motivations in order to explain why the disciples should have been motivated to perpetuate a false account of Jesus' resurrection. It's very conspiracy theory-esque. It's not good. For these and other reasons, it's easy to see why essentially no scholars take this hypothesis seriously. The conspiracy hypothesis simply does not provide a compelling explanation of the data surrounding the resurrection. So it seems, therefore, that the disciples were quite sincere in their belief in the resurrection. But perhaps their beliefs were the result of some psychological state induced by their extreme grief at the loss of their leader and friend. This is the idea behind the other common proposal, which is known as the hallucination hypothesis. On this view, Jesus' disciples hallucinated his, his post-mortem appearances and thus came sincerely to believe that he had been raised from the dead. If this sounds a little desperate to you, you're not the only one. Upon careful examination, this proposal falls apart like a chicken in a crock pot. I'm very proud of that last sentence. <laughs> First, the hallucination hypothesis does not explain the empty tomb. At best, it only explains the postmortem appearances and the origination of Christian belief. In order to explain the empty tomb, the hallucination hypothesis has to be connected up with some other independent hypothesis to explain where did the body of Jesus go? If all you did was hallucinate his post-mortem appearances, then why is the tomb empty? This means that the hallucination hypothesis is not only ad hoc, it has to tack something else on, but it also means that it's going to share in the shortcomings of whatever other hypothesis you have to include to explain where the body of Jesus went. Moreover, the hallucination hypothesis is inconsistent with what we know about the human mind on the basis of modern psychology. A series of hallucinations which transpired for so many different groups of people in so many different times, places, and circumstances simply does not have any kind of precedent in the medical sciences. Furthermore, hallucinations are by definition projections of the mind. They cannot generate new material. Sure, I could imagine having a new conversation with my dad after he passed away as a hallucination or something like this. But is it really plausible to think that I would walk away from a hallucination and thereafter believe that my dad was secretly a cat the whole time? Probably not. Because the hallucination wouldn't generate a new belief in that way, a substantially new idea. And yet, these hallucinations are supposed to have produced the disciples' completely new belief that the resurrection had taken place in history. These hallucinations are supposed to have made them completely revise their theological categories. 
I find this extremely implausible. It would require a huge leap of faith to think that hallucinations are single-handedly capable of explaining these post-mortem appearances and the origin of Christian belief in the resurrection. I therefore think that the hallucination hypothesis fails as well. In summary, we've considered four basic facts about the resurrection narrative, which the majority of New Testament scholars, including those who do not accept the Bible as God's word, accept as authentic and historical. In addition, we've considered whether the resurrection hypothesis constitutes the best explanation of these four facts, and we found that it provides a better explanation than either the conspiracy or the hallucination hypotheses. Given that it is even possible that God exists, and as we've seen, as I talked about maybe one of the last times I was here, there is already abundant evidence that this is the case. We find that the resurrection is both possible and plausible as well. For all of these reasons, I believe we can have confidence that God really did raise Jesus from the dead. Thank you. Questions? Maybe I can uh, make one or two comments as a way of preempting some questions. Um, I want to be clear that uh, I didn't I didn't put this in the main part of uh, of my script that I just read, but um, I want to be I want to be clear that the tactic I adopted here was to try to set aside, just for the sake of argument, the convictions that I think we all share about God's word. Mm. Um, the point is that if you do this, uh, you can demonstrate, again, for the sake of argument, that there are still facts which imply the resurrection is the best explanation. So, even if you are in a position or if you are sharing the gospel with someone who is in the position that they do not believe the Bible is the word of God, that does not enter into my argument anywhere. It's not part of the argument. Yeah. Would we have to conclude that they, we would both have to agree that the Bible and the text that we have, specifically the four gospels, um, are considered historically accurate by historians? So, by the way, um, I have to repeat questions for the microphone. Yeah. So, um, if I can rephrase that a little bit, the question is essentially, are we justified in treating the New Testament documents as reliable from a historical perspective? Yeah, they may not be God's word, but if they're not God's word, right, if they're right. not divine, are they at least historically accurate? Uh, what is that, first primary resource, I guess? Primary source? Um, yeah, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer that from the perspective of how accurate are they? Yeah. Um, and, um, okay. So personally, as a Christian, I think the Bible is God breathed. I don't think there's any mistakes in the Bible. I don't think there's any errors in the Bible. Um, and I think it is, um, Obviously, it is, it is, that's not an accident. That's because God doesn't, that God doesn't lie. 
and and God doesn't deceive his people. So, um, and I think that that can actually be defended quite well because um, anyone who's a skeptic and wants to demonstrate that there are mistakes in the Bible or that there are internal contradictions in the Bible, the burden of proof is on them to demonstrate that a contradiction is really there. And if they can't prove that, if they can't actually show a contradiction, then they haven't done their job. And it's so there's a lot of apparent contradictions that actually do have plausible resolutions to them. Um, if you think you know of one that doesn't have a resolution, it's a genuine contradiction, come let me know. Let's look at it. Um, from the perspective of an historian who doesn't believe that, who doesn't believe that the Bible contains no mistakes, who thinks of it as just an ordinary human historical document at best, how accurate are the Bible uh uh, the, the New Testament documents expected to be? And the answer to that question is that it ranges quite broadly depending on whom you ask. Um, there are pretty liberal, um, theologically liberal organizations such as the so-called Jesus Seminar. Um, if I remember correctly, they have a list of facts. Don't quote me on this. I don't have a source for this off the top of my head. There's a... they they basically started with a list of facts that they gleaned from the New Testament documents. And then everybody voted, everybody in this group, a few dozen people or so, um, scholars, historians, theologians, voted um, on which facts they believed and how firmly they believed that they were historical. And so there were some facts that ended up all the way on this one end of the spectrum, and there were some facts that everybody decided, oh no, there's no way that that could, that's definitely legendary, that's definitely made up. Um, maybe on this end would include some of the facts that we discussed tonight about the resurrection. Maybe on the legendary end of the spectrum would be things like uh, the birth stories about Jesus. Um, a lot of scholars would argue perhaps that those are made up or embellished after the fact as part of Christian propaganda. Um, so I think yeah, depending on whom you ask, you will get a very different answer to how accurate are the New Testament yeah. documents. Because we would have to, to argue with someone like from historical evidence that the resurrection happened. We would both have to have a document that we both agree is historically accurate to look back and base those facts on. And if the person you're debating with doesn't view those scriptures as historically accurate, are there other documents that we can point to that say Jesus rose or the tomb was found empty? Well, again, so so um, there's an important there's a there's an important point about methodology here in the historical sciences. Um, if the person you're talking to doesn't refuses to believe that anything in the New Testament is historically reliable. And if the question is, how do you deal with that? Then that's a, that's a different question about what is the best approach to someone who um, seems to be very closed off to some otherwise probably convincing and reliable sources of evidence. Um, the bottom line is that even secular historians, not non-Christian historians, um, still approach the Bible as a set of ancient texts that probably contains some valuable kernels of truth in it. 
And the goal is to mine those texts or to extract those kernels of truth in whatever way they can. Um, in physics, in science, in biology, normally we can write down an equation, we can run an experiment, we can do a calculation that tells us what things should have been like or what things should be like. We can make predictions and we can do all kinds of things um, that work pretty well. In some sense, we can control what kinds of evidence we look for. In the historical sciences, you don't have control over what kinds of his evidence are available to you. You have the texts and the words on the page, and that's it. Maybe a little bit from archaeology, maybe a little bit from just you know common, maybe geography or something. Um, maybe a little bit from various, uh, sometimes you can get his, uh, historical insights from uh, studying the history of languages and how, how people groups evolved and things like this. Um, but aside from this, there's really not a lot of control. You can't rerun the Bible and see if your predictions come out right the second time, the way you could a physics experiment. So instead of that, what historical scientists, historians have had to do is to develop some principles or rules of thumb or criteria for deciding when a particular thing in the text is real. So a good example of that is um, the, the lack of embellishment that I talked about in the case of the discovery, um, as well as uh, what's known as the criterion of embarrassment, embarrassment in quotation marks, uh, meaning that the author, if the author includes a detail which is embarrassing or unappealing or unflattering in some way, such as, yeah, the women were the first ones at the tomb, you know, bummer. Um, if they include something like that, then this is an indication that that's a kernel of truth. And so historians systematically weigh points like this in these documents. So it's really not an all or nothing sort of, um, the, whole, the whole document is historically unreliable, so we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, and I would challenge anyone who did bring up this kind of objection about, any historical reliability, any insights whatsoever. Um, basically, that person is consigning everyone to total agnosticism about anything that happened in the past yeah. um, and in the ancient world. They're basically saying, we don't know anything about Caesar. We don't know anything about the Greeks. We don't know anything. We basically don't know anything before the year 1500 or whatever. Um, and I think that's just an unreasonable and, and uh, position to take and probably again ultimately motivated by some measure of desperation um, because as soon as you start to concede the possibility of historical reliability in these documents then you have to confront the very frightening prospect that they actually describe something that happened mm -hmm. so um, yeah I think there are good reasons to think that these that these documents are reliable and again that's very concrete very open invitation. If you're in a class and a professor brings up something or you're sitting at lunch with somebody, you're trying to share the gospel and they bring up something you've never heard before, um, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, I have a stack of books probably this tall spread out around my shelves at my house, uh, which are dedicated to dealing with apparent contradictions and challenges in the Bible. There's lots and lots of good scholarly work that's been done in investigating those things. Um, so I would really encourage you either to check out some of those resources or, or please let me know if there's anything that I can do to help with that. Um, 
wonder if there's anything else I wanted to say about that. Yeah, good, good question. I have a question for all of you, actually. Does anyone know, does anyone know who the, the artist is? I, I, I would not have known except I... Is it a famous artist? I mean... Like, somewhat well-known? Yes, okay. depending on your definition of somewhat. Okay. He was well-known to himself and also his wife. <laughs> and also anyone else who's ever visited the, the British Art Museum. Or, oh no, probably not. It's probably not that well known. It's not like a Rembrandt or something. Um, this is a guy named Caravaggio. And can anyone guess the scene which is depicted? Is this the? Sorry. No, go ahead. Is this the disciples that were on the road, like being on the clear? It's Jesus. It, not in quite those words, but yes, this is this is the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's the uh, Josh International Translation. Yes, yes. This yeah. is this is uh, this is the road to Emmaus. Although obviously they're not on the road. So in Luke twenty-four, there's the story of Jesus meeting two disciples on the road. He walks with them. He has uh, a dinner with them, and then they recognize him as he's breaking the bread. And it doesn't really tell us how they recognize him. They, it just says they recognized him in the breaking of bread. And I like to think that maybe when Jesus kind of reached his hand out, maybe it became obvious that there were holes in his hands. Um, so I saw this, I saw this uh, painting in, in, uh, in the, the, I forget the name of it, it's the Royal Art Museum or something in London. And uh, it was really, a lot of the other paintings are just like, okay, this is another weird, you know, very medieval looking painting. I don't know much about it, but this one like really pops out at you. It was really cool. So. Has anyone, has anyone else ever encountered any other hypotheses, any alternative ways of dealing with the data around the resurrection? Jonica? This is uh, something that some of my friends challenged me. Mm. Um, uh, being a scientist, how do you prove this and all? Mm. Um, I was uh, kind of in the line of thinking, uh, proving this with energy and astrology, and you know, like, is there a way to defend the, the spiritual plane and, and divine system and all these uh, aspects? And uh, I, I'm still like, you know, working on it. I thought maybe you have something to say there. Mm. So I, I didn't explore it because like I haven't uh, argued about it with anyone. But mm. uh, one person, uh, a writer, um, one day, um, she's, uh, she's, uh, she argued with me like, you know, because I met her when I was jogging and mm. she, she talked about this and how do you as a scientist how do you believe this and I didn't give her any answer and she's like probably her mom's age and then she um, she wanted to like you know make sure that you know I'm doing the right thing mm. 
So, um, so she asked me like, oh, you're great to be coming with you. And we had a really short conversation, like 15 minutes, and I didn't know, like, you know, how to give the answer for that. And then I looked up, and I didn't have much time to be dig deeper. Mm. And so I was like, how do we like an addition? Maybe we are not that developed to that answer. Yeah. So you're asking maybe. Maybe is it possible to connect some kind of physical process or physical consequences with the process of, of Jesus coming back to life? Maybe energy production or something like that. Right, like, yeah, the, the body, like, you know, like, you know, because there's this uh, um, parts, like, you know, there's the mm. energy component that can be separated. Uh, in science, like, you know, because brain has energy, like, you know, all this, mm. and the life has energy, like, through, through mm. energy. Kind of energy, energy. So I, I, think I'm, I think on that subject, I'm, the the cleanest connection one can make is um, the statement that I made before, which is that um, the resurrection hypothesis is that God supernaturally raised Jesus from the dead. So there is no natural process that I should try to associate with that. I'm, we can all be perfectly happy with saying, as a normal rule, uh, dead people don't come back to life. That's just, it's at the very least a consequence of the second law of thermodynamics and probably also a consequence of the fall in some very interesting and complicated way. Um, but would there have been measurable effects um, in the sense that the resurrection is a space-time event. It takes place inside space and time. So it's not just a, a metaphorical or spiritual purely. Um, Jesus really, I like, to, I like to tell my youth group um, back when I was uh, at a church where we were actively working with a youth group. Um, I like to tell them that Jesus' heart is beating right now. There's blood pumping through his veins. And um, he might be inhaling right now. He might be exhaling right now. But he's not doing both. He's not doing neither. He like he's has a lot of normal human functions. Now, the spiritual body is better. Paul shows us that in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, perhaps Jesus doesn't need to eat. Perhaps Jesus doesn't need to breathe. I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. Jesus can walk through walls in the Gospels. Or Jesus can walk through closed, locked doors um, in his resurrection body. So I don't know how to sort all of those things out. But what's very clear is that um, the resurrection has a physical component to it. Even though it was carried out in a supernatural way, it has physical consequences. Um, in Luke 24, we see a picture of Jesus eating a fish. And... Jesus asks the disciples, while they're all staring at him in disbelief, thinking he must be a ghost, Jesus looks around at them and says, does anyone have something to eat? And they give him a broiled fish, and he eats the broiled fish in front of them. And when I was a kid and I read that passage, I, I really thought, like, I totally misread it. I honestly thought Jesus was, like, such a dude. Like, oh, man, he died and came back to life, and the first thing he wants is a snack. Like, I get it, right? Um, I was probably going through a growth spurt or something, so I was like hungry all the time. Um, Jesus wasn't like hungry. He wasn't going through a growth spurt. 
Jesus was doing that to show them the physical characteristics of his body. He was not a hallucination. He was not a vision. He had a real physical imprint on the space-time manifold, whatever that means. So. Thank you. I, I, the, the, the cancer that I have is like, can we bring these people back to church like this, as videos? And she's Jewish. She said she's, she was Jewish. Mm. Um, but now she's like, you know, she doesn't believe in anything. Mm. And uh, is there a way that, like, that we can bring these people back to church? Mm. This kind of... Uh, our you know, explanation. So that's, I think, that like, how about them? That's, uh, that's my, you know, because they, they do not believe in our supernatural so Yeah, so, so the question is, how can we bring people back to church who, who doubt that the resurrection really happened? Um, yeah, so that's, that's, or maybe, have just, maybe even haven't thought about it that much. Maybe have just walked away from the Lord and stopped going to church and you know, lost interest. Yeah, and this, mm. this scientific, you know, these people who follow you know, science and you know, they mm. have so much faith in that. So yeah. They started like, you know, disbelieving you know, what the Bible says based on the scientific proofs that, mm. that they have. So how do you believe that? You know, yeah. I, I can't believe you are a scientist and you still like you know go to church and read the Bible. That's kind of the um, the argument that they. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, okay. So the question is specifically about people who are um, more science oriented, people who've left the faith because they think that there's a conflict between the science uh, that everybody loves, knows, and loves, um, and what the Bible teaches us. Right. Right. So the resurrection or maybe miracles, miracles in general, doesn't, yeah. doesn't this undermine your belief, your confidence in science? Yeah. I had some, I've had people ask me, if you think God is capable of doing miracles, doesn't that undermine, like, doesn't that bother you as a scientist? Um, and this was actually part of what I tried to show in the last time that I did a presentation here, um, which is that science not only doesn't conflict with the Bible, it actually doesn't even make sense without the Bible. It doesn't make sense without God sort of undergirding it. Um, there's no reason, just, just to recap that without going into all the details, there's no reason that the theories I think up in my head or that the law of gravity or whatever, there's no reason that I should be capable of describing what goes on in the world. I have every right to have expected that the world would be way too complicated for me to understand, for the human brain to understand. Um, it makes a lot more sense that science is successful if there is a God who created us with the capacity to know and steward his creation the way that it says he gave us the responsibility to do in Genesis. So that's the broad answer to the question, how do I reconcile the science side of things with the faith or the theological side of things? Um, the other more nitty-gritty answer is that there's just no conflict. I can ask this person who's a skeptic, um, 
what contradiction do you think exists between res the possibility of resurrection and uh, the ordinary experiments that we carry out scientifically? Um, this was, again, something that I tried to emphasize here in, the, in my script, is that um, Jesus was not a random victim of resurrection. Like, resurrections don't randomly happen to people. God did it on purpose, supernaturally. Um, so, not only do we know that it's an exception by definition, it's not, the, the ordinary laws of nature are not even in operation when God is supernaturally raising Jesus from the dead. But then in addition to that, in case you're worried that God's just going to start raising people from the dead all the time, God had a good reason to do it. It was to vindicate who Jesus said he was. There was a context for it. We're not saying that resurrections just happen randomly all the time and that you'll never, you know, you try to go into a morgue, count the number of dead people, better check again because some of them might have come back to life. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying that Jesus uh, was unique in that respect. And honestly, to, so the last component of an answer I would give to that, how do you actually bring them back? Um, I firmly believe, as, mu as much as I love pouring my time into studying very academic arguments for God's existence and for the resurrection, I think it's important to do that because it's important for the church to know that we do have good reasons for what we believe. But in terms of apologetics, um, in terms of actually trying to win someone back to faith, um, that can, they can be great, great resources. I don't want to discourage anyone from using the arguments for God's existence to share the gospel or anything. But don't lose sight of the fact of what's really going on is a spiritual battle for a person's heart. Um, it's never a purely intellectual exercise. Um, at least I can't think of any cases in which it would be. Um, what people who've walked away from the faith really need is they need to be re-attracted, um, re-impressed with who Jesus is. Um, they need to, Frank, in a word, they need to le learn again how to delight in Jesus. They need to love Jesus. And that means, that means they need more than just intellectual answers, although they don't need less than intellectual answers. They need to recognize Jesus for his goodness. They need to want Jesus. Um, and that is something that only the Holy Spirit can do in their hearts. Um, so you can pray for them, you can encourage them, and you can share Jesus with them. You can make Jesus look as glorious and good as he is. Give him every ounce of the glory that he deserves in their eyes by loving them when they're unlovable um, or by patiently explaining the truth to them again or inviting them to church or inviting them over to your house or whatever. Um, we don't always do a good enough job making Jesus look as good as he is. Um, and that's, that's something that I'm growing into, obviously. So that, that's what I would say, though, is, is try, if you do have concrete opportunities like that, try to target the heart that is 
that has maybe set up an idol and something that it loves more than Jesus, whether that's science or intellect or reason or fame or success in a career or a happy marriage or whatever. Um, nothing is more deserving of our love than Jesus. Yeah. They don't really see the good work that God has God's been doing in their lives. They only blame and bad mm. things, bad things happened. Yeah. But I also think like even the good things happen in their lives at that point, they don't really see that. Yeah. It's coming from God. Yeah. There's something goes wrong to put blame on God. Mm. I have seen that with some of my close friends because mm. yeah, they just forget it. Exactly. See there, like you can't have both. It either has to be all God or it has to be all chance. 